We'll hear argument next in case 08974, Lewis v. the City of Chicago. Mr. Payton. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. On 11 separate occasions, Chicago used an unlawful cutoff score to determine which applicants it would hire as firefighters. There's no dispute that the cutoff score had an adverse impact on qualified black applicants and was not job-related. The only question presented is whether each use of the cutoff score in each of the hiring rounds was a separate violation of Title VII. An affirmative answer uh, to that question is both the best reading of the statute and the soundest policy. Section 703K of Title VII provides that in a disparate impact case, as this case, um, an unlawful employment practice is established, those are the words, is established when, quote, a respondent uses an employment practice that causes a disparate impact on the basis of race. Close quote. Section 703H states that, quote, a test, its application, and action upon the results, close quote, are each violations of Title VII if they are, quote, used to discriminate, close quote. Section 703A2 prohibits racially discriminatory classifications. So under your position, uh, say the city adopts a discriminatory, takes a dis- issues a discriminatory test, people take it, they come out with the results, the city says These, this is the test we're going to use, but you know, we don't have any vacancies. No, nobody can sue at that point? No, no. Our position is that, in fact, there was an additional violation when the classification occurred, when the city announced what it intended to do in the future. Uh, that's also a violation. But if I can make the contrast, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, when the city — suppose they didn't announce anything at all. And what they did was, in all those occasions, the 11 I just described, they used the unlawful cutoff score and made hiring decisions. Um, Title VII's disparate impact uh, looks at the consequences of decisions like that. And those consequences, the results of that, clearly occur in the future on those 11 hiring occasions. And then we would clearly have a cause of action in each of those 11 times. Now come back and say that Chicago announces, before it does any of that, that it intends to do that in the future. That announcement is an independent violation. But that announcement does not change the impact and the consequences that, in fact, still would happen in the future when they happen. There's an independent violation without an impact. But, I mean, it's not the impact provision that you quoted, which which makes that a violation. It must be some other provision that makes it a violation. What other provision is it? Well, there is an impact. You mean uh, when the announcement is made. Right. When the announcement is made, let me make two points. First of all, I believe we — you could clearly seek to enjoin Chicago from doing something unlawful in the future. Sure. Because you clearly have a cause of action at the announcement when well, you know that. that's because of an impending violation. But because you of an impending violation. It is an actual violation. Yes. And the question whether or not the announcement itself is in violation of the statute, I believe Section 703A2 and actually all three provisions uh, make it unlawful to actually um, have a classification uh, that has the effects I just said, and the effects would simply be in how they were sorting the results. So I think there is an impact. It's not the same impact that ripples through time. And the reason I said if they had not made an announcement, it's clear there are consequences that happen in the future each of those 11 times. There's an additional violation 
when they actually use the announcement to say what they intend to do. They say what they intend to do, and then they do it. Those are two different violations. Counsel, the language of the statute of um, 703 is to limit, segregate, or classify. Yes. So is it your position that the violation occurs at the classification that's announced and that every subsequent hiring has limited someone's opportunities so that they — there's a, there's a violation subsequently under the limit clause as opposed to the classification clause, or it's each event is a classification violation? It's our position that, in fact, uh, all three of the uh, sections I uh, quoted from are implicated uh, in the actions that Chicago took. Uh, clearly, there's a classification, but when they actually uh, exclude from actual consideration for any of the jobs on the 11 occasions, uh, that's a limitation. Uh, um, it's clearly a limitation. When they use uh, the test results, that's an action upon the test results, uh, when they use that uh, to um, uh, make decisions, that's clearly a violation of K. All three provisions are, in fact, implicated, sometimes in similar ways, sometimes in different ways. Uh, all of them have consequences. And the way disparate impact law works is you have an employment practice, it's always facially neutral, that has an adverse impact on the basis of race that causes there to be a disparate impact in consequences. We look at consequences, and the elements of the disparate impact violation are not complete until we have all of those elements. Your position may, may follow from the language of Title VII, but you began by saying that it also represents the best policy, and I wonder if you could explain why that is so. Here, the City of Chicago continued to use this test for quite a number of years after it was administered. And so as you interpret the statute, I gather that it, someone could still file a disparate in, impact claim six or seven years after the, the test was first administered and quite a few years after it was first used in making a hiring decision. And how can that be squared with Congress's evident desire in Title VII to require that an EEOC charge be filed rather promptly after the employment action is taken? I think uh, the answer is that um, uh, this is completely consistent with how the statute works, but I'm going to address the policy concern as well. But how the statute works is there's a violation every time there's a use. If we looked at disparate treatment, there's a violation every time there's an intention to discriminate. If there was a future intention to discriminate, there would new, be a new violation. So if there is a next use, there's a next violation, and that's how that ought to work. Um, but look at how this worked. Uh, Chicago used an unlawful cutoff score on those 11 occasions to make decisions. Um, Chicago should have stopped using the discriminatory cutoff score, and it should have looked at all of the qualified applicants that it had judged uh, qualified in making if, if its it, decisions. If it stopped using it, it might be vulnerable to a Rizzo-type suit from the people who were benefiting. Um, I actually think that uh, that um, uh, conflict is not present. Chicago can always make a decision uh, that uh, responds to something that was unlawful. And I think um, uh, this Court has always made it clear uh, the standard may be in Ritchie, but the uh, law is clearly uh, that uh, if Chicago has reason to believe, very good reason to believe, that it is doing something that is unlawful, it can stop doing something unlawful. That's especially the case here. I thought here. in Ritchie that was New Haven's position, that they thought that the test 
was unlawful. I understand. I'm, the, the standard that may apply to Chicago's decision may be different. Uh, but let me give you the example in this case. Chicago used a cutoff score uh, that the district court finds and that their expert who designed the test told them was problematic um, to uh, make decisions that has nothing job-related about it at all. It's arbitrary. Uh, the group that are qualified are as qualified as the group that are well-qualified and vice versa. Uh, they had available to them uh, the option of picking randomly from that group, both groups combined, and making the decisions on a random draw. That is, in fact, how they made all of the decisions inside of the groups that they used. That's always available. Chicago could have done that at any time. The policy point here, uh, Justice Alito, is that I'd say the animating purpose behind Title VII is, as this Court has said, the eradication of discrimination from our workplace. And you want it to be eradicated. Chicago should not have continued doing this. And the law ought to say, and I think it does say, that when they use something that is unlawful, they can be challenged every time they use something that is unlawful. How if long the does the city's exposure persist? Let's say that the um, in the tenth round, someone is selected for the job from the qualified group. And then there's a cutback, and they're going to be layoffs. So the last hired is the first fired. Could — would there be a Title VII suit when that last hired is laid off on the ground that if Chicago had done what it was supposed to do, this person would have had the job long ago and would be higher up on the seniority list. Let me give you two, two responses to that. The first answer is that the statute of limitations is 300 days after every use, and it's no longer. So for whatever it is, if you violate Title VII, the statute of limitations is 300 days. If there is a use that goes into the future, it's 300 days after the last use. Uh, right now, Chicago has stopped using that. The Doors are closed. No one else can challenge this. To your specific question about how would it work if there was a layoff arrangement, the proposed uh, the remedy order in this case, uh, it's not in effect because we are where we are, uh, but the remedy order in this case um, uh, includes shutting down the use of this, uh, but it also has provisions for seniority to, in fact, address, I believe, exactly the circumstances you just described, uh, Justice Ginsburg. So I believe that is contemplated and handled in the remedial order. The issue about the policy here, though, is that if you don't say that a use, in fact, can be challenged, a use of something unlawful can be challenged, what you could end up with here is that Chicago would then take the message that it's okay once they're past the first 300 days, and they could just go on using the discriminatory cutoff score over and over and over again. And that is inconsistent with the overall policy of what Title VII is trying to root out of our economy and in our workplace. Mr. Payton, can I ask this general question? Am I correct that each uh, firefighter in the qualified group who did not make the, the well-qualified uh, has a cause of action as though he had been refused employment when anyone else is hired? There, there are 11 people hired, as I understand it. Did each one of those hires give everybody else in the class a cause of action? The group of the black 
qualified applicants uh, that are in the qualified category, but the qualified category is qualified as the other category, every time uh, the uh, city made decisions about filling jobs in the fire department, it excluded every single one of those uh, applicants, even though they were qualified. So every single one was excluded. So they all have a cause of action because they were excluded, and that clearly fits very easily within how — Surely they couldn't all recover because there's only one job available. No, that, that's correct. That's about what the remedy would be. So the remedy, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously wouldn't be to give all of them jobs. That's not the remedy, and that wasn't the remedy that sought, was sought here. But they were all excluded from consideration, and that's a violation of Title VII's disparate impact prohibition. So they all have a cause of action. Uh, the way the remedy would what work is, what, what is the remedy, other than saying change your practice? What is the end? Say one one person sues and asks for damages. What would the remedy be for a single applicant who was not hired at the time somebody else was hired? Uh, it may be uh, very little. So if it's a single applicant who sues and not a class, this is a class. So if a single, single applicant sues, the remedy would be to stop using the unlawful cutoff score, okay, and then to figure out what would have happened if that unlawful cutoff score hadn't have occurred, and that would have created a very minuscule chance of ever becoming a firefighter and perhaps turning that into some sort of damage award, but it would be minuscule. In the actual event, the uh, award includes uh, some actual uh, jobs being allocated to the 6,000 members of the class, was 132, to be decided upon in some random uh, way that they would be hired, but that's how it would work. But they're all clearly uh, injured when they're all excluded from consideration in all 11 rounds uh, in violation of each um, each qualified firefighter who did not get a job because a well-qualified one uh, did uh, has a new cause of action I guess every time somebody's hired from the, the well-qualified pool every time no it's somebody's hired that constitutes discrimination against the qualified fi- firefighter who was not hired and then another, uh, then somebody else is hired. Each time, it's a new cause of action. They had um, 11 rounds of yeah. hiring that are relevant to this case. There are other rounds afterwards. They exhaust the first category. But in the 11 rounds of hiring, when in every one of those rounds the unlawful cutoff score is used, uh, uh, that is action upon the results. Uh, that is a limitation. Um, you know, that is the use of something that causes an adverse impact. Uh, on the basis of race, and yes, yeah, that so is they have a new cause of action. Sure. Of now, but, they, but it, if 300 days go from the first round of hiring, they don't. They cannot sort of piggyback that onto a later cause of action. Yes, if they sue in this case, uh, the uh, EEOC charge was filed uh, after the uh, second round of hiring, and in this this case, then therefore, no remedy can um, uh, take account of the first round of hiring. If they had sued only on the seventh round of hiring, no remedy could take account of those foregone opportunities. So that would also play out in how the remedial order would work. Uh, and I think I want to reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Council. Mr. Cotteel. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. 
Uh, as the questions, I think, reveal, I think the bottom line question in this case is whether or not under the text of Title VII there was a present violation in each of the 11 rounds of hiring when the City of Chicago relied on its conceitedly discriminatory test to exclude the plaintiffs from consideration. And we think that Title VII has three mutually reinforcing provisions in it, each of which point to the same conclusion. A violation of Title VII occurred in this case when Chicago, in each of those 11 rounds, used its hiring practice and caused a disparate impact, thereby limiting the employment opportunities of certain applicants. Chicago gave an ability test and relied on that ability test in a way that Title VII forbids. It took action upon the results of that discriminatory test in a way that arbitrarily excluded qualified applicants from being hired. Uh, Justice Alito, I think, uh, uh, in response to your question, I think our position follows entirely from the text of the statute. We're not as concerned about the policy consequences, though we do think that if the Court were concerned about the policy consequences, we think that there's a good reason why Congress distinguished between disparate, disparate treatment and, dis, uh, and dis, uh, disparate impact uh, litigation. But it's the language of Title VII itself, and in particular 703H, which forbids action upon the results. Why would Congress have wanted to allow a question like this to be left open for such an extended period of time? Uh, Why would it not have wanted everybody who is potentially affected by it to understand where things uh, stand uh, at a much earlier point, at at some reasonable period of time after all of the information is in in, in the possession of a potential plaintiff to determine whether there has been a disparate impact and uh, whether that, that that person is going to be adversely affected by it, and particularly if uh, at a later point the effect of a remedial decree can be to upset the employment the employment status of other people who have been hired in the interim. I agree that the, there might be policy arguments against it as well as for it, but here's the way uh, I think we look at it. And the United States is the nation's largest employer, and we face similar concerns. We give certain tests. Um, but I think the, what might have, what was probably animating Congress was a fear that if the rule of the City of Chicago were adopted, then an employer who made it 300 days without an EEOC charge being filed 300 days after the announcement of the test results, would then be able to, for all time, use that discriminatory test, and it would lock in that period, that that test for as long as 10, 20 years. And Congress could have legitimately worried about if a test made it 300 days, an employer essentially had a get-out-of-jail-free card used for all time. And I would say that that precise thing appears to have happened in this very case. At Joint Appendix page 54, when the City announced its test test results in January of 1996, it said it intended to use this test for only three years, through 1999. Afterwards, 1999 came, the City, in the City's own briefs, this is in their Court of Appeals brief at page 12, they admit they made a new decision to continue using this test and the test results for subsequent hiring rounds. That was a new decision. And, indeed, that's a decision I think many employers would logically make after three years, because then they don't have to worry about the possibility of a disparate impact lawsuit. And since, as this Court said in Ritchie, one of the goals of Title VII is really to encourage voluntary compliance on the part of employers, adopting a rule like the cities of Chicago's is really antithetical to that, because then it will essentially lock in for all time uh, that old discriminatory test. I think another 
reason policy or another policy reason Congress may have thought about uh, is that a rule that forced people to file within 300 days might be damaging to the EEOC dam- and divisive to employers because it would say you only have that 300-day period to file even before all the consequences of the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the employment decision are fully understood. Well, actually, in, in this case, am I correct that um, the the, the nine years has gone by, but that's because of the litigation. The suit was filed, what, four months after the uh, 300-day period ran? The, the first charge was filed, I believe, 420 days after the January 26th announcement of the test results. And, yes, Justice Kennedy, then there was a period of discovery and litigation over business necessity and the like. And in this case, the City admitted in other litigation that there was no basis for giving this 89 cutoff score, that a person who scored 65 was just as likely to succeed as a firefighter as a person who was uh, who had scored 89. Uh, uh, Justice Stevens, you had asked about the remedy in the case, and here's how we understand the way remedies work in disparate impact litigation. It's largely injunctive in nature. Uh, it's mostly about preventing future problems. There is a back pay claim that is available that is statutorily capped at two years. Uh, not everyone in this 6,000-person class could get that full amount of back pay, obviously. Instead, what happened here, there was a remedial phase at trial, and what they did was they decided that uh, uh, the experts on both sides admitted that 132 people approximately would have been hired out of that class, and that provided the appropriate amount uh, of back pay. Was, so you was get 132 named people, or was it just 132 undifferentiated? I think it was 132 undifferentiated people, and then I think they're, they're, and Mr. Payton and, and, uh, can, I think, fully explain how the randomization of awards was allocated. So everybody gets 132 over 6,000 times whatever the number of people who would have been hired, right. and, I mean, the pay for the number. Right. And, and, Mr. Chief Justice, to respond to your concern uh, before, that amount of money is not — you couldn't go back and look to earlier periods of time outside of the statute of limitations, outside of the 300-day period. Rather, only any subsequent use uh, — if, for example, in this case, the remedy couldn't look to the first round of hiring because no lawsuit was brought within that first round of hiring. It was brought, at the se- it was brought after the second round of hiring. I think you had a footnote in your reply brief that said that uh, if your position prevails, there would need to be an adjustment in the relief granted by the district court. That is, that is correct. And I think that the petitioners agree with that as well. And that's, I think, a further limit on the way in which this present violation theory uh, operates as a matter of practice. Now, this Court has said in cases such as Ledbetter that, uh, that there must be a present violation. And disparate impact litigation looks quite different than disparate treatment litigation uh, in practice, because disparate impact litigation doesn't need that missing element that has been at issue in Ledbetter and Evans and Ricks of discriminatory intent at that subsequent time of action. Here, in a disparate impact case, all that need be shown by the plaintiff is adverse impact, and that adverse impact happens in each of those 11 rounds of hiring. Each of the time, the city, each time the city used its test results and drew a line and said, you under 89, we're not looking at you. That was action upon the results, to use the language of H2. And that would be clear even though it had not been established much earlier that the test was invalid. 
So a city could go along using a test that was an invalid test, not declared such. Ten years later, somebody comes up and says, this test that is being applied to me is an invalid test. That, that's exactly correct, Justice Scalia. What, of what use is a statute of limitations that, that, that that operates that way. Let me say two things. First is I think H2 refers to action upon the results, and that thing happened in 10 years is itself action upon the results. And so I think as a statutory matter, the language decides it. Now, with respect to the policy reason, I think the reason is that otherwise Congress had to fear precisely what you're saying, that an employer 10 years from now would use that discriminatory test because they knew they had made it past the 300-day initial phase of time, and then could use it for all time. And so the statute of limitations and the concerns about repose work hand-in-hand with other concerns of Title VII, and in particular, incentivizing employers to ensure voluntary compliance with the law of Title VII, and which this Court said in Griggs, the goal of which is to eradicate discrimination from the United States' labor markets. So I suppose the benefit is not that the city knows it's safe, it can rely on a test and all that, but it knows that it only has to pay 300 days back. Uh, that, that, is, that, is, that, that is the benefit of, of, of that particular back pay limitation, yes. Um, but in a case like this, where the city knows very well this test is discriminatory and indeed has said so in litigation, I think Congress wanted to incentivize and make sure there was an ability for people to sue at each time that discriminatory test was used. Is there are no further questions. Thank you, Counsel. Ms. Solomon. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In January 1996, the City adopted and announced an eligibility list for hiring candidates who sat for the firefighters' examination. Petitioners were told that a priority pool had been created, that based on their scores they were not classified in that pool, and that further consideration of candidates would be limited to those who were in the priority pool, at least until everyone in that pool had been called for processing. The City also publicly admitted that this tiered eligibility list had adverse impact on African Americans, and petitioners were aware of this. But petitioners did not file charges challenging the exam and the cutoff score within 300 days after the tiered eligibility list was adopted and announced. Now they contend that charges can be filed to challenge the same exam and the same cutoff score every time the city hired from the priority hiring pool. That position cannot be squared with the statute. Calling other applicants from a hiring pool from which petitioners had already been excluded did not limit or classify petitioners in any way. Suppose there were no list, but each time there was a hiring round, the city just took from the top, from the top score down. So there's no list, but each time the city uses the test results and hires the people with the top scores. If I understand correctly, that would be the same case as this for this reason. Um, list is used in a couple of different ways. A list might be used to describe the strict rank ordering that Your Honor is describing. And in that case, once there is that kind of a list, it's the same as this case. What happened in this case, after that kind of a list was made, we also drew another line 
which was the priority hiring pool. No, my, my hypothetical was there's no list at all. If they just go back to the raw scores, and each time they pick the top. So that actually, if we're going back to the scores, but no announcement has been made ever that we're going to use the scores in a certain way, we agree that every time the city actually consulted the scores, there would be a new claim. But that's because so what, is, what is the list other than an administratively convenient way to use the scores? The list was the device that limited and classified petitioners in this case. And that's why it's so important. Because in order to have a present cause of action, Section A2, under Section A2, which is the disparate impact provision, petitioners have to point to something in the charging period that actually limited and classified them. And that was the effect of the list, and in, including the priority hiring pool. In a case where there is no general practice, no announcement, no decision, nothing, but rather every time the city makes hiring, the city undertakes a new decision with new criteria, then it is making a decision at that point. It is engaging in a practice that is then at that time limiting and classifying the petitioners. When so that even though uh, there is a clear case on the merits of disparate impact. Unless the suit is commenced within 30 days of the announcement, then it's as though it were lawful. That's, that's your position. The statute A2 requires an unlawful is that Is that there's a free pass. You don't sue within 30 days of the compilation of the list and the notice of the list, you sue 420 days later. The discriminatory practice gets frozen. The status quo gets frozen forever. That's, that is your position, is not? That is the function of the operation of a statute of limitations. And, of course, it's not unique to Title VII. But this is not exactly a ta title, uh, statute of limitations. It's the time you have to file your charge. It's a charge filing. Right. There's also a two-year statute of limitations in Title VII. You can't get back pay, I think, for more than the, two years. The 300-day charging period under Title VII functions like a statute of limitations. And when a timely charge is not filed, no recovery can be had for that claim. And the Court has said that over and over in a series of disparate treatment cases. Now, the defining feature... You, ha you don't have one case, I think, certainly not from this court, of disparate impact. All the cases that you cite are disparate treatment cases. The cases are disparate treatment cases, Justice Ginsburg, but the rules should be the same in this case for several reasons. First, those cases reflect that the reason there is not a present violation when the consequences of a prior discriminatory act are felt is because the defining feature of the claim is absent within the charging period. Now, that is a perfectly good rule, no matter whether it's discriminatory treatment or discriminatory impact. And in this case, the defining feature, namely disparate impact, in the sense defined by the statute, required by the statute, to limit or classify in a way that denies people employment opportunities based on race, that defining feature was absent within the charge. How period. is it absent? Because the, the statute says 
that the established, the, uh, it's established, namely the unlawful employment practice, it's established only if, certainly if, the respondent uses right. a particular employment practice that has a disparate impact. That refers back to A2. So in that period, on a certain date, he used that limiting practice, and therefore, on that particular date, uh, he established the unlawful employment practice by using a test that limited, et cetera. I, I have two responses, Justice Breyer. And the first is that Section K, which is what Your Honor is quoting from, does not describe accrual and it does not define the underlying violation. It talks about when a, 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 an, a excuse me, when a violation is established. And what's so interesting is that the reliance on those words, uses an employment practice, it's a few words plucked out of the middle of Section K. You actually can't apply Section K literally to this case and have anything that approaches anything that makes sense. And that's because Section K actually goes on after those words that get highlighted over and over. And it's, and it refers to the rest of what happens in a case when a claim of disparate impact is tried. And so if you read So what, why don't we look at, um, subsection H? Subsection That says, and it's an, it shall be an unlawful employment practice for an employer to give and conjunctive and act upon the results. Correct. So when you hire, aren't you acting upon the results? And how are you acting upon? You may be acting upon it, as Petitioner argues, when you classify. But why aren't you acting upon when you hire? Because there is no act that limits and classifies. And what's interesting about Section H, it's not — I go back to Justice Breyer's point. Isn't in the very act of hiring, you're using the test results and saying — Each time you do it, you're saying, I'm going to cut off at this limit and I'm not going to consider someone outside of this limited period. Well, well, that's what's actually missing in this case. The city did not go back to the test results and it did not, it did not create, uh, engage in a new decision or a new practice. But isn't that what practice and policy means? Meaning that each time as you continue forward, you're using a particular practice, a continuing Petitioners continue to be ineligible for as long as the list was used in the way that we said at the outset it was going to be used, namely that the well-qualified pool, the priority hiring pool, would be called first. The reason they continued to be ineligible is because they had been limited and classified as ineligible until the priority pool was hired first. That was the only practice that had adverse impact within, as required by the statute, meaning limit and classify. Now, to complete my answer to Justice Breyer. May I ask this question, Ms. Solomon? Would would your argument be the same if the practice in this case were required a high school diploma? Did you understand my question? I'm sorry. I didn't realize you had finished. Excuse me. Suppose the, the practice were high school diploma. Could that would you make the same argument as you're making? And let's add to that that it was adopted 10 years ago. Well, that's and right. Duke yeah. Power announced to the world that it was going to use a high school diploma. E- indeed, it listed in, in the county all of the high school graduates and said, this is the list. A case like that might present different accrual problems for this reason. 
There might be several appropriate times when a person affected by a policy like that could be said actually to have been limited and classified in their employment opportunities. And it could be when they enter grade school, but that is, is not an appropriate time. So if it's 10 years before, before the act, so, so that person is, is roughly eight years old. It could be when they apply to the employer. It could be a variety of other times, but those cases, whatever difficult or cruel problems and, and questions they present, they're not presented here because this was a closed universe. Everybody affected by the city's eligibility list and the test and the cutoff score knew but from the moment. In my example, everybody who's not a high school graduate would have been affected right away. But if they're not interested in employment with that employer, then they are not. It, it, you, they're certainly affected in one sense of the word, but they're, perhaps it would not be possible to say their employment opportunities had been affected. We certainly agree that there should be one time to challenge every employment practice that has an unlawful disparate impact. But the question in this case is whether there is more than one to challenge exactly the same thing. Petitioners you, you force people to challenge the practice when they don't even know if it's going to affect them. In the hypothetical that's been discussed, somebody who didn't graduate from high school, you know, wants to be something other than a firefighter. But that doesn't work out, and then he says, well, now I want to be a firefighter. And they say, well, you can't because you didn't graduate from high school. Right. You, and I think your position is that, well, he should have filed that er suit earlier. No? Our, our position is that the charging period runs from the unlawful practice. And the Court has stressed it is important well, But what to is the unlawful practice? The unlawful practice here was limiting and classifying petitioners in a way that deprived them of their up, um, employment opportunities. The, this is what, this, what they we were told. Can put that in when, concrete terms? It was the 89 percent cutoff, so that anybody who got below 89% on the test was never going to be considered until all the people who got 89 Correct. to 98. And after that decision was made, there was nothing else that Chicago did that affected petitioners in the terms required by the statute. Hiring others did not adversely affect petitioners because so they were all. Could you answer Justice Stevens' hypothetical? What's the difference between those people? And each person who doesn't have a high school diploma is not and is not hired. Um, does that mean that the moment that they announce the high school diploma um, requirement, that everybody who had already received one, whether they wanted to work at this job or not, had to sue? And it's only those people who just received the high school diploma who can sue 10 years later? The statute requires that the the, ad, the complainant be limited and classified in their employment opportunities. So what is so the difference between the policy announcement that each time I hire, I'm not going to use a high school, I'm not going to look at people who don't have a high school di diploma, and I'm not going to look at people who don't have a test score above 89? What's the, the difference between The those? difference is that once petitioners here were classified, out of the eligible pool for priority hiring, they were out. They were simply out. They were not being considered anymore at all. We didn't go back 
to, to look at the test. We didn't consider petitioners. We didn't reject them each time. Well, somebody getting, be, someone getting the letter that you sent to people who were qualified didn't know that. The only thing that I see in the letter that you sent to the people who fell into the qualified category was that it was unlikely, which I take it means less than 50 percent, that they would be called for further processing. But it was possible that they would be called for further processing. You didn't tell them anything about uh, that. You didn't tell them that you were going to fill all of your available positions with people who were classified as well qualified. With respect, with respect, Justice Alito, the letter does say that that because of the large number of people who were classified well qualified a step ahead of where petitioners were classified. It was not likely that they were were going to be hired. And for that reason, that is when the injury and the impact was felt. Whatever else later happened, whether Chicago hired a lot of people, Chicago hired no one, whether Chicago even hired some of the petitioners, they had years' worth of delay. And at this point in the litigation, it is undisputed. The city made 149 hires from the first use of the list. That's more than any other Just class. to follow up on, on Justice Alito's question, what if it were different? What if the letter said, look, you didn't get it, you're not well qualified, but we really do expect to hire a lot more, so, you know, keep your fingers crossed. There's a good chance that you're going to be hired. And you say that those people should have sued right then. Correct. Because the impact at a minimum is the delay in hiring. And the, the court has made quite clear that you don't, a, a, a complainant or plaintiff does not have to feel all of the consequences right at the outset. That's kind of a bad policy, isn't it? You're telling people who may probably not be injured at all, you're saying, well, you still have to go into federal court and sue. With respect, Chief Justice Roberts, they are injured. Their hiring will be delayed, possibly substantially. Oh, sure. No, I understand that. But, you know, let's say we think we're going to hire, if if the budget plan goes through, we think we're going to be able to hire everybody else in, in four months. And you're saying, well, those people have to sue anyway because they're injured by the four-month delay. They are injured by a four-month delay. But there may be circumstances in which information is not conveyed in a way that would put a reasonable person on notice that he or she had a claim right at the outset. And that relates also to the high school diploma hypothetical. Well, why did the city say that it was planning to give a new test in three years and then wait more than a decade before giving a, a new test. If, if I received one of these qualified letters, and I also and I knew in addition that the city was going to give a test in three years, that might well affect my incentive about bringing a lawsuit to challenge this. But it wouldn't change the fact that there had been at least, a th- if you wait for the next list, you've still been delayed at least three years in your ability to be hired as a firefighter. And as far as the reason why we didn't follow through on the aspirational goal of giving another test within three years. The tests are very difficult and expensive to deliver, I think, to to develop. Excuse me, the record in this case actually makes that clear. Despite rather significant steps, including the use of a a prominent African-American industrial uh, psychologist to develop this test, it had severe adverse impact. The test actually compares rather favorably to the test that was given in the city of New Haven, but the district court invalidated it, and, you know, we did undertake to develop a new test, but But surely the court — You don't challenge that. You you now acknowledge that the plaintiffs were treated unlawfully. We have not pressed that claim. That is correct. 
Justice Alito. Were you but prejudiced by the, the delay in the filing of the EEOC charge? There was some testimony, and we quoted in our brief, uh, about things that the person responsible for setting the cutoff score could not remember. But a statute of limitations actually doesn't require prejudice, so we didn't undertake to try to prove that. Repose arises naturally at the end of the charging period. It's not something that, that the defendant has to earn, either by capitulating to the plaintiff's demands or otherwise proving prejudice. And in a case like this, it's, it wasn't possible simply to take the list down. The Court's opinion in Ricci makes that quite clear. Our expert told us all the way through the trial, he testified you at the trial. You didn't have to take the list down. You si- simply could have said anyone who got a passing score, anyone who's qualified, we're not going to make the distinction between qualified and unqualified. You don't I, have to throw I out believe the, the list. You don't have to throw out the test. I believe the Court's opinion in Ricci addresses that as well. That's a, that's a, a a misuse of the test scores. The, the expert was resolute, even through the trial. And the expert said, I mean, the test divisor said, he didn't make up that 89% cutoff. That was Chicago made it. He, his reason for suggesting the 65 cutoff score was because of the adverse impact. That was an attempt to deal with adverse impact, but his position was the test was valid to measure the cognitive aspects that it was attempting to measure and that those related to the training firefighters had to undergo in the academy. And he was clear as well that a higher score created an inference that the person was more qualified to to perform in the way. you You lost on that. We have. But the reason that I'm mentioning it is because it's not simply a matter of of why don't you take the list down. At the time that the expert is telling us the test is valid and it can, it gives rise to an inference that people closer to the top are better, possess more of the cognitive abilities that the test was testing for, we would have at a minimum been courting disparate treatment liability to adjust the scores, to randomize them further, or to take the list down. No, but, but, to return- but going to 65, opening up the classification is not adjusting the scores, it's not taking the list down. It's just saying anyone who passes the test can proceed to the next step. It seriously diminished the opportunities of the people who were at 89 and above. There were about 1,700 applicants at, at 89 or above, and there were 22,000 65 or above. So calling in random order got to, the, I mean, you just got to take your — get as good legal advice as you can and determine, is it, are we going to be in more trouble if we follow the test or more trouble if we, uh, if we take it down? People have to do that all the time. They look, well, if I do this, I'm going to be in trouble. If I do this, I'm going to be, I've got to decide what I should do. Correct. But read in conjunction with the 300-day charging period. And I would like to follow up uh, just briefly on answers to Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor. Well, I'm sorry. So, read in conjunction with the 300. You've got to finish that sentence at least. Before. I, I'm sorry. That was the end. So, yes, at the point where the employer is assessing the options, the city was not sued within 300 char- — excuse me, charges were not filed within 300 days after the tiered eligibility list was adopted and announced. Petitioners were aware that it had adverse impact. No charges were filed then. No charges were filed after the first use of the list. So at some point when the employer is weighing the options, the employer can also factor in. The time to challenge this has passed. 
What petitioners seek here is a new opportunities, 11, 10 opportunities, to challenge exactly the same thing that, the, that they would have challenged if they had filed a charge promptly. They continue to emphasize that the eligibility pool, when compared with the pool of applicants, had a disparate impact. But that's not a new violation. That's not a new classification. And it doesn't limit anybody's opportunities in any way beyond what they were already limited. That's the old violation. That's the one they didn't charge. Now, petitioners do claim that the shortfall evidence showed that they, they uh, showed um, that use of the list had disparate impact each time. But it actually didn't either. That also was the old violation. That shortfall was compiled by comparing the number of African Americans who were hired using the 89 cutoff score and the number who would have been called for further processing. How do you, if, I, the, the problem I have with all of this, it, it makes entire sense, except when, when you read uh, subpart K, it says an unlawful employment practice based on disparate impact is established if a complaining party demonstrates that a respondent uses a particular employment practice that causes a disparate impact on the basis of race. Correct. But you have Which is what happened here. But they the statute used. excuse me, Justice Clay, the statute goes on and it describes the later things that happen at trial. So in our view, read literally where, where, where does it go on? It goes on to say that the respondent fails to demonstrate that the challenge practice is job related or um, subpart little two, there is an alternative practice with less disparate impact. So, so K, if K is going to be consulted at all, and we do not think that it should be because Section 706E, which has always been thought of as the charging period, talks about an alleged unlawful practice. And that's what the person knows at the outset. Section K talks about the burden of proof and how you go about proving these at trial. And that's why it uses the word established. But that's also why it describes the entirety of what happens at trial. Read literally, you can't pluck a few words out of, the, out of one of these provisions and say, aha, they used an employment practice. You have to read the whole thing together if you're going to read it at all. And when you read the whole thing together, you come up with the absurd result that the charging period doesn't run until the district court brings the gavel down and determines that an unlawful practice has been established. In this case, that would have meant that the people 65 and below could file charges within 300 days after the district court's decision, which is something like 11 years after the practice in this case. And that's because that was the moment at which it was established. And that's why we think that K does not bear on this. And uh, H to what are, what, is there anything else in that K? You see, I listed about 10 things, let's say 10. Imagine. One of those things is that it was used. Now, all the other things there will not have been established, are things that, 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 to do with the test, basically. So you have like six or seven that have to do with the test and the criteria, and then you have one that it was used. Right, and, and that's and why. And so I thought, looking at the list, it's quite right that it's used for a different purpose. But, but it's I not mean, they, this K has to do with a different thing, but, but a critical element of it was that the practice be used. 
You, it, it, but the, again, even if K is consulted, and for the reasons that I just outlined, we don't think that it should be. It doesn't bear on accrual. But even if K is consulted, it doesn't, it doesn't say that um, any use of an employment practice is, is um, a new unlawful act. It has to be an employment practice that actually has disparate impact. Well, you'd have to then say that all the things that are there, the other nine and so forth, all well, those nine this is actually things. A, excuse me, Justice Breyer. This is actually a slightly different point. At the outset, I indicated why Section K does not bear on accrual at all. It describes what happens at trial, and for that reason, you really can't pluck a few words out. Well, that's true. It but does. even if one is going to consult it to determine accrual, what it says is that the use of an employment practice with adverse impact, and in this case, there was only one, and that one was when petitioners were limited and classified based on the test scores. Nothing that happened after that, including hiring others, was an unlawful practice with disparate impact in a way that affected the petitioners. They had already been rejected. And when an employer says, I will not consider you for the position, or perhaps it says, I will not consider you for the position until I have considered a lot of other people first, that is a rejection. Nothing that happens after that, whether the person hires somebody else, whether the person doesn't hire somebody else, whether they change their mind and later hire the person whom they had previously rejected. Ricks, after all, had a grievance pending. It was certainly possible that that would change the outcome in the case. But the court nonetheless says you cannot wait for the consequences that to That was be a dis- disparate treatment case. Correct. But there is no... The, the, the argument here is disparate impact is different because there's no need to show intent for Correct. disparate impact. But the only practice in this case that had a disparate impact in the sense used by the statute was when the tiered eligibility list was made. After that, of course there was a consequence of that. Consequences can be felt in employment for a long time. The people in the well-qualified pool were hired before petitioners. They were paid before petitioners. They're going to get their pensions before petitioners. Those things continue to have consequences. But the court has made clear that the consequences cannot be challenged by themselves unless there actually is a present violation. Now, there is not even an argument in the other side's briefs, neither of them, that explains why there was an adverse impact based on race under A2 at any point when the city used the list. If one reads the briefs very carefully, one will see that those times when when a claim is made in the briefs that we used an unlawful practice, it always goes back to the test and the list. Simply keeping the list up after we announce it is not a new violation. It is quite clear in the cases that the employer does not have to change a decision in order to obtain repose. And, of course, the disparate treatment and disparate impact are simply different methods of proving a claim. They're not different claims by themselves. In this case, in addition to the statutory language, there are a number of um, policy reasons that while we don't rely on them heavily, we do rely on the statute they should nonetheless be considered in deciding this. There was no sense in which a claim filed to challenge the list was premature. It was the one act that actually limited and classified petitioners. 
Everything else that happened after that either didn't affect the petitioners at all, as in hiring people who had made the cut, or it affected them only in the colloquial sense that the consequences of the prior act continued. Chicago did not have to revisit this in order to obtain repose. The statute makes that quite clear. Um, Mr. Payton emphasizes only the policy of righting employment wrongs, but there are other policies in the statute. In addition to repose, the statute makes clear that claims should be brought to the EEOC at the earliest opportunity. Excuse me. We ask that the judgment be affirmed. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Mr. Payton, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you. This is a case about uh, jobs. And I want to read from the letter uh, that Justice Alito was referring to. This is the letter that uh, the qualifieds received. It's in our um, joint appendix at uh, JA35. Um, and it's the last sentence of the first paragraph. This is the letter that uh, they all got. This is the letter that Arthur Lewis, the name uh, uh, person in the uh, case, got. However, it says you're qualified, you're qualified, uh, there are well-qualified, uh, and it's unlikely that language is there. And then it says, however, because it is not possible at this time to predict how many applicants will be hired in the next few years, your name will be kept on the eligible list maintained by the Department of Personnel for as long as that list is used. Um, I did focus on the word used, and it's not only in Section K, it's also in Section H, where it says used to discriminate, because it's an ordinary word that the city used itself in advising uh, the petitioners in this case. In uh, the uh, answer to the complaint in this case, uh, which is at Joint Appendix uh, um, uh, 19, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, Joint Appendix 16, uh, the answer to actually the first paragraph in the complaint in this case, uh, the city says as follows. This is the second sentence in the answer to the complaint. Defendant, the city, admits that it has used and continues to use results of the 1995 firefighter entrance examination as part of its firefighter hiring process. Using an unlawful cutoff score and the eligibility list is nothing other than the functional equivalent of the cutoff score. Using that to make decisions on those 11 times is a violation of Title VII. And the argument that there is no additional impact, it is the dramatic difference between being told what someone intends to do and then they do it. Uh, you are told that maybe your chances are going to be minimal in the future or maybe 50-50, but then when it actually starts happening and you see other people start getting jobs, that's an impact. That's a consequence. When I said the animating principle in Title VII and disparate impact is results and consequences, it's results and consequences. Those are additional impacts that go with the uh, additional uses that clearly establish a violation of Title VII's disparate impact prohibition. Uh, in this case. Uh, I don't think that the statutory language is actually, um, I think the best reading, as I said, of the statutory language, as I said, I think the policies behind how that works, um, it is 300 days uh, after every use there is a, a statute, but in fact the control over that is entirely within the city. If they stop using this unlawful cutoff score, after 300 days, they're completely done with any potential liability. And the point is you want that to be challenged
because we don't want unlawful employment practices to continue to go forever and ever and ever and ever out there. And we can see in this very case that if you don't allow the challenge, the practice goes on and is inconsistent with, the, I'd say, the national policy to rid our workplace of discrimination. Are there any other questions otherwise? Thank you, Counsel. The case is submitted.